You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Two things before we get started. First off, this is a continuation of the story from last episode, so I would very highly recommend going back and listening to Long Story Short Part 1 before continuing on to this one, or I suspect things will be a little bit confusing. While you're at it, why not try listening through the Vodacast app? Vodacast is a free podcatcher app just like the one you're listening to this through. The difference between Vodacast and Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or what have you is that it lets podcast creators like me add extra content onto their shows. So if you listen to this episode via Vodacast, it'll pull up images, articles, and other relevant stuff at the appropriate times while you listen along. Throughout this episode, I'm going to be pointing out some of the extra content available on Vodacast, so give it a try. All right. Let's hear that funky Hub and Spoke Sonic ID and get moving. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This might seem even more circuitous a start than usual, but I feel the need to introduce you to Johnny Dowdy. And I can think of no better way than through Herring's Heads. Now what should we do with the errands aids? Turn them into loaves of bread. Errands aids are loaves of bread and all sounds things. Johnny Dowdy was raised among the fishermen in Brighton. From the time he was five or six, he'd head down to the docks and help out in whatever tiny way he could to earn, as he said, a few bob off that one and a few bob off that one. Johnny became a fisherman himself, a sailing sort through and through. He joined the Royal Navy when he was 15 years old, right at the tail end of World War I, spent a few years in the Coast Guard, and then came back to fish some more. He fished and fished and sailed and sailed. I'm sure he was wonderful at both. But man, just listen to that voice. With me hand in me pocket and a few extra bob, Royaba village, I was right on the geom. When someone said, Johnny, I'm turning around, the loveliest crumpet in the village I found, and I have a gal, I have a gal. It may be the most charming thing I've ever heard. And later in his life, when the old fishing traditions and the shanty songs were at risk of disappearing, it seems like every person with a microphone and a BBC-approved received pronunciation accent came around to record Johnny Dowdy. There's nothing specific to Johnny Dowdy's story or his life or even the songs that make him pertinent to this episode. I just really love Johnny Dowdy because I'm sure this is going to come as a big surprise for all you longtime listeners. I love sea shanties. I don't care that sea shanties as a TikTok trend are already long gone. I loved them before TikTok, and I'll love them long after TikTok, which will probably be like, what, eight months? If I know about TikTok, it has to already be on its way out, right? I love sea shanties. I know that's hopelessly white of me, but I can't help it. Mayonnaise is delicious, and sea shanties are wonderful. I'm using the term sea shanty loosely. A proper sea shanty is a work song, generally built out of call and response between a leader, or shantyman, and the people who were working the lines, sheets, sails, and what have yous. The critical purpose of a sea shanty was to keep time, to sink everyone on a task. But there's more to it than that. A good sea shanty also helped cut the tedium of monotonous tasks. A great shanty told a story that connected with the lives of sailors. And the best shanties went one step further, conveying useful information on top of all that. Take one of the absolute platinum hits of the all-time sea shanty charts, Spanish Ladies. 
Now, technically, Spanish ladies is not a proper sea shanty. It's call and response sections are more like verse, chorus, verse than pull, boys, pull. And Spanish ladies predates the invention of the shanty by at least a half century, perhaps much longer. Maybe it was like the er shanty, or maybe it was just so good that it got folded into the shanty genre later on. Whatever the case, any sailor in English history was bound to sing Spanish ladies, including your friend and mine, Johnny Dowdy. How well and Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, all ye daughters of Spain. Cause we just received orders to sail for old England. But shortly we hope to return back again. Spanish ladies always begins this way, with the British sailors leaving behind the ladies or daughters in Dowdy's version of Spain and hoping to return to them someday. Pretty easy to see why sailors liked this one. The subsequent verses differ from version to version because they describe the course of the ship. Take Dowdy's second verse, which begins at the Eddystone Lighthouse, which I spent an entire episode talking about earlier this year, if you somehow missed it. Now the first point we made was the Eddystone Lighthouse. Next, Ramsend of Plymouth, Stockport, London, White. And then we saw them by Beachy, by Fairlight and Dungeness. And we bore straight away for the self-fallen light. This is what I mean about conveying useful information. Spanish ladies might not be the best shanty when it comes to setting a work rhythm, but it's a really top-notch song for marine navigation, especially for the time it was written, when getting a ship between Spain and England was a terrifyingly tall order. Spanish Ladies began as a naval song sometime in the late 17th or early 18th centuries, a period in which there were no shortage of opportunities for the English to meet some Spanish ladies. We already talked about the War of Jenkins' Ear and the disastrous journey of George Anson at the top of part one, but that was hardly the first time England and Spain had tried to destroy one another. Lessy. You got the Anglo-Spanish War between 1625 and 1630, a little too early. You got the War of the Quadruple Alliance in 1718, that's more like it. If I had to guess, I'd say the most likely time for Spanish ladies to have first been cemented and popularized, if not written, would have been between 1701 and 1714, during the War of the Spanish Succession. Charles II became King of Spain in 1664, when his father, Philip IV, died, supposedly of a broken heart. God, the 17th century is so dramatic. Philip had overseen a sharp decline in the Spanish Empire and hoped that his three-year-old son, Charles, would do better. Nobody else seemed very confident. Charles and Philip were part of the Habsburg family, who had basically ruled all of Europe at their peak. But the car was tipping over that peak by the time Charles was born, and the Habsburgs were in for a rude couple of centuries. The Habsburgs were very protective of their royal line, which is a polite way of saying that they only married one another. And even when he was a wee bitty big-jawed monstrosity of a baby, it was pretty obvious that the intensely inbred Charles II was not going to make a good go of it. As the historian power couple Will and Ariel Durant put it in The Story of Civilization, Charles was, quote, short, lame, epileptic, senile, and completely bald before 35, always on the verge of death, but repeatedly baffling Christendom by continuing to live. <laughs> it's very good. From approximately the moment he was made king, everyone in Europe began planning for his death with a whole lot of folks maneuvering Game of Thrones style to be the next ruler of the Spanish Empire. And I'd love to take you through the various players and moves, but we just don't have the time right now. I'm sure Mike Duncan or somebody has already covered it anyway. Oh, here's a link to an animated YouTube video explaining it on the Vodacast app right now. All we have to know is that the War of Spanish Succession was a real hefty mama of a war. It was a war so big that it gave birth to other wars, 
all around the world, from Russia to the Americas to India. Because King Charles II, or as he was nicknamed, the Bewitched, had no heir when he died in 1700, distant relatives came crawling out of the woodwork to take over. Holy Roman Emperor Leopold thought his son, Archduke Charles, should succeed Charles II because then they wouldn't have to change the names of stuff around the castle. On the other side was the Sun King, Louis XIV of France, who said his grandson, Philip, should take over Spain because he was the Sun King, Louis XIV of France. In his last will and testament, Charles gave over Spain to Philip, which seems like it should have settled the question, but the rest of Europe was not super happy about France, the world's strongest empire, gaining control of Spain, the world's largest empire. And so, well, war. Particularly displeased with the idea of King Philip was England, who sent massive naval forces to fight in the War of the Spanish Succession, meaning a lot of English sailors would eventually have to say farewell and adieu to those fair Spanish ladies, including Admiral of the British Fleet, Sir Cloudsley Shovel. <laughs> if I wasn't still feeling full from Captain Preserved Fish Third a couple episodes back, I'd really make a meal out of Sir Cloudsley Shovel. Who knew Shovel Knight's first name was Cloudsley, I would start off saying, and then things would descend from there. But not today. Admiral Shovel had brought 21 English ships to support the Holy Roman Empire's attack on the port city of Toulon in the French Riviera. But after a long fight in the summer of 1707, the siege was unsuccessful, and Shovel ordered his fleet to return to England. They left Gibraltar for the Atlantic on September 29th, and that is when they might have turned to the chorus of Spanish ladies. And we rent and we roar like a trinity sailor. We rent and we roar across the salt sea until we strike soundings in the channel of old England. From Ashen to Sealy is 35 League. It's instructions, including the option to rant and roar, for how to get back home. The island of Ushant, off the coast of France, marked the bottom of the English Channel, and the Isles of Scilly, its top, 35 leagues away. Between the two... Well, that's where it was very easy to get lost. Until we strike sounding. Especially for Admiral of the Fleet Sir Cloudsley Shovel in 1707, who had no way of knowing his longitude and little way of determining his latitude either, given the weather. Shovel didn't enter the channel at Ushant. He made a big crescent west of France. They were at war, after all. So the only way he had to determine when he had reached the channel was his ship's soundings, depth records. There's a big drop-off off the western coast of Europe. So, if he could tell when the water got shallow and his latitude at that time, he could theoretically match his depth against his naval charts and figure out where he and his thousands of sailors were. At noon on October 21st, the fleet determined their latitude at 48 degrees, 50 minutes north. They marked a depth of between 100 and 130 fathoms. Judged against their charts, that put them 200 miles west-southwest of the Sillies. They had days to go before they reached land. Within 30 hours, four of the fleet's ships wrecked on the western rocks of the Sillies, and between 1,500 and 2,000 people were dead, including Sir Cloudsley Shovel. There's a legend that he survived the wreck initially and was murdered on the shores of St. Anne's Island by a girl who coveted his emerald ring. Seems like bullshit, but one way or the other, the Admiral of the Fleet was shoveling clouds in heaven by the morning of October 23rd. More British sailors died on the Western Rocks that day than in any naval battle of the century. All because Sir Cloudsley Shovel and his men had no good way to mark their position but not for much longer. After the Scilly Island disaster, the British would vow never again, craft the biggest, greatest longitude prize ever, and start into motion the last storied act of the most difficult problem in human history.
This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this is Long Story Short, Part 2. The English Longitude Act of 1714 wasn't the first time a reward had been offered for solving the problem. In part one, we talked about the one put forward by King Philip II of Spain, and the bigger one put forward by King Philip III of Spain. Galileo put his hat in the ring for that one, and for another offered by the Dutch, which he seemed in good position to win, except that he was locked up by the Inquisition and died under house arrest while the Dutch tried unsuccessfully to contact him. There was also a French reward from around the same time as the Dutch one, the year 1600 or so. There's some not entirely reliable documentation of a Venetian longitude reward, too. Even the British had already had a version of it. When Thomas Axe, a parish clerk for Ottery St. Mary's Church in Devon, died on July 20th, 1691, he, for some reason, set aside a thousand pounds in his will to be gifted to whoever could develop a longitude method that could be used by regular people at sea. Our old buddy, Robert Hooke, applied for the prize and was rejected. But the true English Longitude Prize was a whole different kettle of fish from any of that. For a start, it came with a lot of money, delivered on a sliding scale according to how accurate the solution was. If someone came up with a way to determine longitude at sea within a degree, they'd get 10,000 pounds, about a million and a half pounds in today's market. If they could get it to within 40 minutes of a degree, the award rose to 15,000. And if they could nail down longitude to within 30 minutes, half a degree, it climbed to 20,000 pounds, nearly four and a half million American dollars in today's money. A king's ransom, literally, like that was the ransom they anticipated paying for the king, and so it was the prize. There were other smaller amounts offered too. If someone had a method that was deemed promising, they could ask for an annuity to work on getting it finished, for instance. All of the awards and annuities were to be allocated and adjudicated by a new governmental body called the Commissioners for the Discovery of the Longitude at Sea, better known as the Board of Longitude. The board was composed of a number of prominent English scientists, naval officers, and other esteemed Brits. It was a huge operation to deliver a huge amount of money for the solving of a huge problem. And it was all set into motion because of Sir Cloudsley Shovel and the thousands of sailors who died with him at Scilly in 1707. Well, sort of. The Scilly disaster was a terrible tragedy, and it shocked the British people from the commoners all the way up to Queen Anne. But the mathematically inclined among you may have noticed that there's a bit of a gap between the Scilly Island disaster of 1707 and the Longitude Act of 1714. Three years. Twice. Plus one. The Longitude Act was unlike anything ever put to British law before, after all, and it required the cooperation of all those members of the new Board of Longitude, who weren't all naturally friendly with one another, as we'll get into a bit down the line. So maybe it just took those seven years to work out the details and get the thing put into practice. The law is a scalpel, not a hammer, right? No, that's the wrong way around. The view of the Longitude Act being passed as a noble bit of patriotism, the newly unified British people coming together to say never again to the silly disaster, is a popular one. It's how Parliament saw itself in 1714, and it's how the story of the Longitude Act usually gets told. But the truth is that the Longitude Act was less the result of Admiral Shovel drowning, or being murdered on the beach for his ring if you buy that Cotswap, and more the result of a grift. A con. A swindle. Which you know I love! William Whiston was the son of a rector, born in 1667 in Leicestershire. He studied mathematics at Cambridge and in 1693 became a rector himself at Lowestoft. In 1701, he left Lowestoft to lecture at Cambridge as a substitute for his mentor, some guy named Isaac Newton. 
The next year, Newton stepped down permanently and Whiston took over as the chair of mathematics at Cambridge. So far, so good. But William Whiston held a number of unpopular views that got him in trouble. As we talked about in Walking on Sunshine a few episodes back, he thought that every planet and star was inhabited by intelligent life. Not only that, he believed they were all hollow, including the Earth, and that still more intelligent life lived on the insides of everything. He also tried to unify science with religion in some extraordinarily dubious ways. He thought that the Earth had only started turning in response to Adam and Eve eating the apple, for instance, and he keyed the date of Noah's flood to November 28, 2349 BC, the result of a comet passing over the planet, which he said would return to drown the world again on October 13, 1736, which caused the people of London to evacuate to their rooftops that surprisingly rainless morning. But none of that wackiness got in William Whiston's way. The real issue was that he didn't believe in the Trinity, that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all part of one triune God that had always existed together. Whiston was an Arian, not in the Nazi way. He believed that Jesus was created by God, a separate entity. He refused to take the Nicene Creed, which begins, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, here's the important bit, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. In 1710, Whiston was charged with heterodoxy, expelled from Cambridge, and soon after, proceedings were begun to excommunicate him from the Anglican Church, which he eventually left for the Baptists anyway. The important thing to understand in all this is that in 1714, when the Longitude Prize was established, William Whiston was in bad shape. He was barely scraping together a living, giving public lectures on astronomy and physics at coffee shops. But even this line was endangered because he couldn't stop making reference to his heretical religious beliefs within those lectures. The dude needed a break. One day he was drowning his sorrows with a friend, Humphrey Ditton, a fellow mathematician, acolyte of Newton, and teacher at Christ's Hospital. Over the course of the evening, their conversation turned to the question of longitude, and by the end of the night, they, along with some drinking buddies, had come up with the solution, a way to accurately determine longitude at sea. It was an incredible stroke of luck for down-and-out Willie Whiston. Except, what was he supposed to do with it? The Dutch prize was gone. King Philip's prize was gone. King Philip was gone. The French one was gone. The Venetian one, if it existed at all, was written in impossible terms. And so was Thomas Axe's will. Whiston and Ditton had the most valuable idea in history, sitting in the palm of their hands. But no one left to sell it to. Whiston whipped up popular sentiment about the silly disaster from seven years ago. He told Parliament something had to be done. Someone, ahem, ahem, him, had to come up with a solution to the longitude problem. But the only way to get someone, ahem, ahem, him, to come forward with it would be to offer a prize. A big prize. A king's ransom. And he got a number of sailors and navy men to sign on to his petition. Parliament agreed to it, and so the Longitude Prize of 1714 was officially offered just in time for Whiston and Ditton to claim it. What was Whiston and Ditton's solution? According to a new method for discovering longitude both at sea and land humbly proposed to the consideration of the public, which they published almost simultaneously with the passage of the Longitude Act, Whiston and Ditton had been jawing about the problem over drinks when Whiston noted that during the Battle of Beachy Head, when the French Navy had walloped the English off the coast of Sussex in 1690, he was able to hear the cannon fire all the way in Cambridge. With this, they were well on their way to using sound to determine longitude. So they swore their drinking buddies to secrecy and got to work on the details. As a reminder, the real trick for finding longitude was about time. Since the Earth turns 15 degrees of longitude an hour, if you knew the precise local time in two locations at once, you could work out the meridian distance between them very simply. So. If a ship at sea knew its own solar noon and also knew the solar noon in Greenwich, 
then they'd know how far west or east of Greenwich they were. The problem was, how could they know what time it was in Greenwich? Wiston and Ditton's solution was, in theoretical terms, extremely simple. If someone fired a cannon at Greenwich noon, then anyone within earshot of that cannon would have all that they needed. For the next few days, Wiston and Ditton surreptitiously went around asking seamen what they knew about sound at sea. How far away might a ship be able to hear a cannon? The answers they received were apparently not very heartening, because for a brief moment the two men put away their idea. But then, Wiston had another flash of inspiration. Like an honest-to-God flash. The War of the Spanish Succession, the very one that Shovel had been fighting when he drowned at Scilly, providing the pretext for the Longitude Act to come, had just ended. And on July 7th, 1713, England threw a party about it. The Thanksgiving Day for the Peace. In honor of the occasion, George Friedrich Handel wrote Utrecht Te Deum and Jubilate, music for the peace at Utrecht, which premiered at St. Paul's Cathedral for an audience including Queen Anne herself. Anne might have had trouble fully taking in Utrecht because at the same time, the skies of London were filled with a rare sight. Fireworks. Colorful explosions filled the air around London. You can see an engraving of the occasion on the Vodacast app now. Holy crap, thought William Whiston, looking up at the heavens burning with booming colors. That's the ticket right there. Whether a ship at sea could hear a cannon, marking the time or not, he wasn't sure. But if those cannons were firing colorful explosive shells like the ones at the Thanksgiving Day for the peace, then they could no doubt be seen in clear weather for a hundred miles around. The game was back on. Wiston and Ditton's plan was to shoot fireworks into the sky from all over the Atlantic. Every day, hundreds of ships anchored to fixed positions would set off their guns at their local noons, and any ships within a hundred miles would be able to hear or see the spectacle and by it know where they were. Apparently, when Whiston and Ditton first published this plan, some people, maybe even Isaac Newton, thought it was brilliant. But when it got to the Board of Longitude, where Newton was a member, it fell apart. There are so many things wrong with the Whiston-Ditton proposition that it boggles the mind to think that Whiston was so confident in it that he bilked Britain into offering £20,000 under the premise that he would then sneak in and take the money. For starters, the fireworks ships had to be secured in place, right? That was easy enough to do along the coasts, where the water was shallow and anchors could be weighed, but along the coasts was where they were needed least. How could the ships be kept in place in the open water, where sailors really needed them, and where the ocean was too deep for anchors? Well, said Whiston and Ditton, someone would just have to invent a new kind of anchor— that would sink beneath the wavy part of the water and sit into the still depths. With this new kind of anchor, the sea itself would lock the ships in location. How and if this new kind of anchor could be made, it could not. They didn't concern themselves with, writing, The matter belongs to trial and experiments, and is not to be here particularly demonstrated. Why concern ourselves with mere matters of impossibility? Even if they could be made stationary, there was also the question of how to determine the longitude of these longitude ships in the first place. Sure, if you could put them out there, they could signal their own noons for sailors to hear, but unless the positions of the fireworks were nailed down and understood by the passers-by who needed them, then they didn't tell anybody anything. In effect, the Whiston-Ditton proposal was just kicking the longitude can down the road. They suggested that the locations of their longitude ships could be determined by some other means of determining longitude, like Galileo's celestial clock or lunar positioning. But the fact that those methods didn't work at sea was precisely the problem they were trying to solve. Damn it, Willie, I find you very frustrating. There was also the issue of expense. Building, outfitting, and manning this enormous fleet of longitude keepers would cost a 
thousand king's ransoms, and the ships would be vulnerable to attacks from rival nations, from pirates, or even random opportunists or senseless vandals who happened to arbitrarily decide to make trouble. Or maybe some bad actor would decide to take advantage by pretending to be a longitude ship. Maybe the French or the Spanish would shoot off fireworks in order to throw off British ships and purposefully engineer a disaster like Scilly all over again. And then there was the problem of manpower. If, somehow, the British Navy was able to solve all the other issues with the proposal, they'd still need men to crew the longitude ships and to send up the fireworks every day at noon. The Navy already had experience with this kind of thing. They detailed small groups of men to live in lighthouses for weeks or months on end. Lighthouse keepers, they knew, quickly became troublesome. They got bored, they fought, they ran out of food, they got sick, they got drunk. Sometimes they even went insane. The crews of these longitude ships would have all of those problems, but they'd also be rolling on the waves the whole time. And they'd be asked to not only accurately keep track of their time, but also remember to fire those cannons precisely at noon each day. It was a disaster in the making. Whiston and Ditton thought that they had solved the longitude problem, that they'd be made rich and famous for their trouble. Instead, they were laughingstocks. Later in 1714, Jonathan Swift wrote a poem for the Scriblerus Club, entitled Ode for Music on the Longitude. It went like this. <laughs> Hold on. I feel the need to emphasize that this is the actual poem written by Jonathan Swift, because I suspect you are not going to believe me. So, if you're listening on the Vodacast app, you can read along with me right now. For real, honestly and truly, it went like this. The Longitude Missed On by Wicked Will Whist On, and Not Better Hit On by Good Master Did On. So Did On and Whist On may both be bepissed on, and Wit On and Dit On may both be beshit on. Sing did on, beshit on, and wist on, bepissed on. Sing did on, and wist on, and wist on, and dit on, beshit on, bepissed on, bepissed and beshit on. Ah, <laughs> literature. Wist on and dit ons was hardly the only bad idea for finding longitude. With such a hefty carrot hanging above the answer, weirdos, crackpots, flimflam men, and earnest yet misguided scientists came pouring out of the woodwork, throwing piles of harebrained ideas at the Board of Longitude. We'll get to know some of them after these messages. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. And by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive and UCI DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better jobs, and career progression. Not to mention that learning more stuff makes you more interesting as a human being. UCI DCE has been serving lifelong learning and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. 
They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health services, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credits towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis, and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. So, go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now, or follow the link in the show notes. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and only pay for quality candidates that meet your must-have requirements. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed knows how important it is to make the most of your recruiting hours and dollars. With Indeed, you can save time and money by setting your must-have qualifications and only paying for the quality candidates that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Join more than three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash the constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash the constant. Indeed.com slash the constant. Terms and conditions apply. Small business owners, startups, freelancers, entrepreneurs, do you know the number one way to avoid unfair bank fees? Step one, close your account. Step two, open a new Novo free business banking account. Novo is the number one business banking app because it's built from the ground up to be powerfully simple and free business banking that Money Magazine called the best business checking account of 2021. With Novo, there are no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Sign up for free in under 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash the constant. Then they'll mail you a free Novo debit card and you get free ATM use. Novo makes banking easy and secure. You can manage your account in Novo's customizable web, Android, and iOS apps with built-in profit-first accounting and invoicing. Plus, you can tag each transaction and upload receipts. Novo seamlessly integrates with leading business tools and services like Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks, and more for free. Plus, Novo offers over $5,000 in perks and discounts just for signing up. Get your free business banking account in just 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash the constant. Go to banknovo.com slash the constant to sign up for free right now and get a free copy of Novo's Small Business Starter Guide. banknovo.com slash the constant. With 20,000 pounds on the line, there were few people in England or beyond who didn't come up with some sort of idea for solving the longitude problem. There was Isaac Hawkins, who thought that he could tell longitude by the tides. High tide, he said, was governed by the position of the moon and traveled around the Earth along with it. Determining the position of the moon directly was Amerigo Vespucci's idea, and it made sense in theory, but in the last couple hundred years, actually predicting and pinpointing its location had proved incredibly difficult. Instead, Hawkins said, just find the high tide, which he thought should indicate when the moon was directly overhead. It doesn't quite work that way, but Hawkins' idea never got far enough to find out. His stumbling block was even simpler. How was a ship supposed to know when it was at high tide? Hawkins thought it could be done 
by bringing a barometer along for the ride. Since the atmosphere thins out as you get higher, Hawkins figured you could just watch a barometer, and when it fell, you'd know you were on the highest of high seas. No. So you were directly below the moon. No. So you knew your longitude. One last time. No. A Frenchman named Elaine Pateau suggested improving dead reckoning instead of longitude. The concept was that he would build a water wheel that precisely marked the distance traveled, so sailors wouldn't be left throwing logs overboard and counting knots. Even if it worked, it didn't. Pateau still needed a way to account for drift, so he also suggested another invention he couldn't invent called the hydraulic automat, which would measure the movement of the water. In advance of criticism, he defended this non-existent device that he simply made up a name for, writing, Time and experience can perfect this new invention that is only now undergoing its birth. Even if his two imagined devices could be brought into the material plane that we all share, there was still another problem for navigation, ocean currents. Pateau shrugged them off, saying that people basically know where, what, and when they are, and anyway, somebody can be sent out to figure out the remainder later on. Sounds good, Pateau. Francis Haldenby had a much simpler idea. While everyone was fussing about clocks and stars and hydraulic automats, he said the solution was staring everybody right in the face. All you had to do was start at a fixed point where you knew the longitude and latitude, and then sail at exactly a 45-degree angle from there. That way, for every degree of latitude lost or gained, you could safely say that your longitude had changed the same way. If you're traveling exactly southwest, then for every degree you go south, you also go west. Duh. All you sciencey idiots with your complicated sciencey stuff just always sail precisely southwest and you're set. Haldenby's proposal has the remarkable joint qualities of being both exactly correct and exactly useless. He received no prize. There are dozens of bad longitude theories, but anyone who talks about them is required by law to tell the most infamous and flummoxing one of all, that of Sir Kenelm Digby. Now, it is worth saying at the outset that it is not at all clear that the Digby proposal was serious. It was published in an anonymous pamphlet called Curious Inquiries dating from 1688, and it's very possible that the pamphlet was meant to satirize Sir Digby. But I can't tell. If it is meant to be a joke, it is a far more subtle one than Swift's did-on on At any rate, here it is. Kenelm Digby was an English diplomat, astrologer, scientist, and, well, pirate of the early to mid-17th century. During his lifetime, his theological and philosophical works were well thought of, and he was a founding member of the Royal Society, but his influence on history is mostly limited to having invented the modern wine bottle. Hey, that's nothing to scoff at. Anyway, he wrote his pretty little head off, including a cookbook which had a recipe for cooking castrated rooster fed with venomous snakes, which he served to his very lucky wife, Phoenicia. Oh, I said anyway like I was coming to the point, didn't I? Anyway, hmm? Digby also wrote a lengthy treatise on the subject of an incredible medicine called sympathetic powder. According to Digby, sympathetic powder could be made from iron sulfate, dissolved in water, and then left to evaporate in the sun. The logic of sympathetic powder is <laughs> nigh on impenetrable to those of us not living in the 17th century, but in essence, Digby said that the sunlight caused a healing principle to be drawn into the powder through air currents, and so the powder could cure disease and illness. It's stupider than that. Because to heal someone, you didn't put the powder on the wound. No, no. Instead, you put it on the thing that made the wound, or on the used bandages that had previously wrapped it. That's the sympathetic part of the sympathetic powder. It worked from a distance, pulling the healing factor through to the cut from the knife. This sort of sympathetic magic was all over the place in culture. <laughs> all of culture, all cultures, basically. But what's it got to do with the longitude problem? Well, all right, let's really kick this up a notch, why don't we? 
In Curious Inquiries, the anonymous and possibly satirical author points to Digby's discourse on the powder. In it, Digby said that he had once dissolved a quantity of the powder into a bowl of water and then dipped a bloody garter in it, which had been previously wrapped around a woman's injured hand. The effect was so sudden, so powerful, and so instantaneous that it had caused her to jump and scream. So, to determine longitude, all you had to do was... Oh, I should warn you. I should warn everyone here that this next part has some serious animal cruelty, but I think it's safe to say that whether this idea was offered as a joke or not, it was never actually tried, so it's not real animal cruelty. It's purely theoretical and possibly satirical animal cruelty. But at any rate, if, if you just can't stomach that sort of thing, go ahead and jump forward 30 seconds or so, okay? Ready? So, what you do is stab a dog. Yeah, I told you. Not fatally, just enough to cause an injury that won't heal before your ship gets to land. Then, you bind the stab wound for a little bit, remove it, and shove the dog out to sea with you. Meanwhile, someone stays behind with the knife and the bandages, and every day at high noon back in London, they dip the knife or the bandages in the powder. At that very same moment back on the ship, the dog will then yelp, and you'll know the time in London. And with that, your longitude. Okay, we're done talking about the dog now. You can come back. The Longitude Act of 1714, along with its board and prizes, encouraged all kinds of newfangled solutions. Fireworks ships and stabbed dogs and mechanical doodads and overcomplicated charts, including one by a woman named Jane Squire that broke the sky up into a neatly comprehensible three million parts centered around Bethlehem, which would guide the way of sailors as it had guided the three magi. None of these new methods worked, of course. In fact, none of them were even promising enough to convince the Board of Longitude to convene in person. Each member would read over their apportioned number of proposals and promptly throw them in the trash. The new ideas were all bad, every last one of them. But, if you'll remember, there were still some old ideas, promising ideas, that we talked about last episode. Four of them, in fact, although by 1714, two of them were beginning to fall apart. There was Galileo's method of making a celestial clock out of the moons of Jupiter. This worked remarkably well and became the go-to way of finding longitude from land. With telescopes in hand, explorers mapped the new world, while surveyors mapped the old one. But at sea, Galileo's method was useless. The rolling of the ship made it impossible to focus a telescope on Jupiter. Galileo had built a telescope helmet and proposed a hydraulic gimbal platform, and many of the proposals submitted to the Longitude Board were basically rejiggers of those ideas, but none of them worked. They weren't wacky solutions, though. They made sense. Until you went out and actually attempted to look at Jupiter from the ocean, it sounded like a simple enough thing to do. Far simpler, in theory, than any of the other conceivable methods. But I'm going to tell you what nobody at the time, including the Board of Longitude, knew, that Jupiter's moons would not solve the problem. In contrast, by the time the Board was appointed, most of them had accepted that one of the other of our old methods was dead in the water. Fuck, that's a pun, isn't it? Mercator had believed that compasses pointed to a magnetic iron mountain a little ways east of true polar north, and that with a little bit of precision, sailors could triangulate their position by the distance between the two. In 1714, the Iron Mountain theory hadn't yet been disproved, some still rooted for it until pretty late in the 19th century, but any hope to use magnetic declination to find longitude had died. The astronomer Edmund Halley had spent the last couple decades before the Longitude Act testing out a number of possible solutions, including taking detailed readings of compasses, which he transferred into maps, which he hoped could be used as Mercator had proposed. But soon he realized that Magnetic North, whether it was tied to the Iron Mountain or not, was very unstable. It shifted randomly without warning or pattern. Using it to determine longitude was impossible. That left the two other old solutions, which one man in the annals of the Board of Longitude managed to take stabs at. In the same year as the prize was offered and Whiston's fireworks ships were sunk, Stephen Plank published a pamphlet entitled 
an introduction to the only method for discovering longitude, humbly presented for the good of the public. The only method, Planck said, for determining longitude would be to take a number of watches out to sea set to the local time of the port you left from. He was essentially reiterating Gemma Frisius's plan from the mid-1500s. The kernel of Frisius's idea was very good, but the problem he had was that there was no clock accurate enough to do the job. That was still the case for Planck in 1714, and everyone else, too. His answer was pretty paltry. To make up for general inaccuracy, he suggested taking more than one clock out so that if one fell off time, the others would make up for it. Very good idea, actually, but only if any of them could be counted on to keep proper time, which they could not. To deal with the wet and salt, he said the watches should be kept in a brass box, lined with cotton, sealed except when being examined. And to manage the problem of the metal of the watches contracting and expanding along with changing temperatures, Planck said the brass box should be set on a low-burning stove and kept there for the entirety of the journey. Planck had managed to identify three of the four biggest problems with the clock solution. General accuracy, environmental conditions, and temperature. What he neglected to address was maintenance. Clocks needed to be lubricated which meant that they needed to be oiled. But the oil also gunked up the works over time, especially if the conditions were bad, like at sea. So clocks needed not just to be oiled, but cleaned, which couldn't be done while they were running. Even if you could keep one going without oil, or oiled without cleaning, there was another bit of unavoidable maintenance, winding. And all clocks of the day stopped running when they were being wound. Anyway... The solutions for the problem Planck did recognize were entirely insufficient, so his only method for discovering longitude had lost out of the gate. Luckily for Planck, his only method wasn't. Six years later, he wrote the board with a new theory, the true method for determining longitude. Planck said that the true way of solving the problem lay with the moon. All that was needed, he wrote, were three things. One, an accurate table of the movement of the moon at any given time, two, an accurate and detailed star chart for any given time, and three, a device for determining where the former was in relation to the latter. Planck had none of those things. The first and second, he figured, were things the great astronomers of England could produce, whether he knew it or not, they were very much trying. The third, the instrument that would be used to judge where exactly in the sky the moon was, and thus what time it was in some other place, say Greenwich, he claimed to have built and taken by sea to Jamaica in order to test its usefulness. He had sunk his fortune into designing and constructing it, he wrote, worked obsessively to the point that his job, his friends, and even his wife had left him. And then, on his way across the Atlantic, it had broken. He asked the Board of Longitude to fund construction of a replacement and to remunerate him for the loss of the first. They did not. Planck's true method was the one that Americo Vespucci had laid out and attempted in 1499, and it had its own giant share of complications. Once again, for clarity's sake, the trick to determining longitude, whether by Frisch's means or Vespucci's, was time. The Earth spins 15 degrees of longitude every hour, so if you knew what time was high noon when the sun was at its zenith, at sea, a pretty simple task, and you knew where the sun was in the sky at that moment somewhere else, say Greenwich, then you could accurately say how far west or east of that location you were. Frisch's idea was very direct. Just bring a clock set to high noon in some location. Say Greenwich, hint, hint. But... As I've said, and I will say again at greater length down the line, clocks weren't accurate enough to do the job. One degree of longitude is the equivalent of four minutes, and one degree of longitude at the equator is 60 miles across. If your clock fell off by just 10 minutes over the course of your months-long journey across the Atlantic, it'd be close to useless. But as of 1714, they weren't even that good. So, the alternative, Vespucci's idea, was to turn the night sky itself into a clock. The moon's apparent movement in the sky is far, far slower than the sun's. It completes a transit in a lunar month instead of a solar day. So, if you could determine the moon's exact position in the sky 
and you had at your disposal a chart of what time the moon should be in that position in some location, say, say it with me, say Greenwich, then, well, you don't need a clock anymore, right? But to do this, you needed a bunch of information, none of which existed in 1714. First of all, you essentially needed to have a detailed map of the sky. Because when you look up at the moon, you need to be able to say precisely where it is. That means you need to mark its apparent distance from whatever star it happens to be nearest to at that moment. But assembling that kind of detailed observational chart of the stars was a Herculean task. Oh, and in order to judge that apparent distance, you also needed a tool that'd do that like the thing Stephen Plank claimed to have built and broke on his way to Jamaica. But even with both of those things, you're still only halfway there, because you need to know where the moon is supposed to be at a given time, right? But the moon's orbit wasn't obvious in 1714, let alone predictable. Figuring out where it would be precisely at a given time was another moonshot-style problem. Fuck, that's another pun! Once you had those three things, the map of the sky, the forecast of the moon, and the instrument for superimposing one upon the other, you still had two more problems. For one, if you expect sailors to use this information, you're gonna have to lay it out for them. That means you need to supply them with tons of permutations for them to mark out. As the moon crosses the sky, they'll need to be able to look up and decide which star it's closest to at that moment and then pull up a chart of the moon's movements in relation to that star, then mark the distance, and then work out the time in Greenwich. But even that's not enough, because the moon won't be in exactly the same spot in the sky in Greenwich and wherever you are. In fact, the farther you are from Greenwich, the greater the discrepancy between where you see the moon will be from where Greenwich sees it. That is to say, even if you had all the other stuff, you still need to account for the lunar parallax between your position and Greenwich's. Have I said Greenwich enough? Greenwich, Greenwich. God, I hope I haven't been pronouncing that one wrong my entire life. Think of the Apple Podcast reviews. It sounds terribly difficult because it was terribly difficult, extraordinarily terribly difficult. But hey, this is the age of enlightenment we're talking about here. A time when extraordinarily terribly difficult things were being figured out all the time. And the most incredible part of this story, I don't know how to possibly emphasize how amazing this is, is how many of the extraordinarily terribly difficult things that we figured out were only figured out because people were trying to solve the longitude problem. Back in our episode on light, vision, and flat earthers, it comes together as one cohesive story, I promise, I think, reductio ad absurdum, we talked about the fleet of brilliant astronomers who first figured out that the speed of light was finite, and then determined what that speed was, and then worked out that light traveled in waves, and that it traveled in transverse waves. If you want a refresher, there's a link to that episode in the Vodacast app right now. Hey, I can just link to my own stuff? And each of those discoveries, by all of those brilliant astronomers, Oli Romer, Christian Huygens, Jean Picard, Jean-Dominique Cassini, they were all trying to figure out longitude. The Royal Observatory in, where else, Greenwich? It was built explicitly in order to help map the stars and the moon to solve the longitude problem. The position of Astronomer Royal was created with the express mandate of solving the longitude problem. The first person to hold that title was John Flamsted. He spent 45 years cataloging around 3,000 stars, the single greatest contribution to our understanding of the night sky, all for the longitude problem. His successor, Edmund Halley, did the same thing for the Southern Hemisphere and unraveled the proper motion of the stars, all for the longitude problem. Isaac Newton's law of universal gravitation was formulated in part to try to figure out the movements of the moon. It's sometimes said that Newton turned the universe itself into a clock. He found the underpinning mechanics that govern nature and found them to be regular and predictable. That was the spirit of the century, as Halley, Newton, Flamsted, and Moore labored to decipher the clockwork mechanisms of the stars and the moon and the earth and the sun, all for the longitude problem. These scientists themselves were a bit like a clock all working together, each in their place. Yet, when it came to actual clocks, they were skeptical. 
Newton especially. At the first meeting of the Board of Longitude, he advised the other members that the solution would come from the sky, from the observatory at Paris, or Greenwich, from the moon, or the planets. The timepiece would never have the accuracy of the heavens and could never be counted on to give longitude. Newton wouldn't live long enough to find out he was wrong. While the world of astronomy advanced person to person, discovery to discovery, towards finding the longitude, its chief opponent was improving too. The clock. Christian Huygens, who had worked at the Paris Observatory with Cassini and Picard and ascertained that light traveled as a wave, was an even more successful clockmaker than he was an astronomer. Not that those were his only two fields. He made intimidating contributions to math, physics, optics, engineering. And look, let's just stick to the two things right now. Astronomy and clocks. In 1658, Huygens published Horologium, in which he made an outstanding announcement. He had solved the longitude problem. The solution, he said, was a new invention he had built in accordance to the principles of swinging bodies, which Galileo had noticed and Huygens had expanded upon. It is said that when Galileo was a boy, he became transfixed by a swinging unlit lamp at church. It oscillated back and forth by the power of the breeze, and Galileo timed the period of its swing against his young pulse. Then, someone came along with a billhook, gathered the lamp up, lit it, and set it loose. Now it made much bigger swings, but, Galileo noticed, the timing of those swings remained the same. He concluded that the length of a pendulum determined the period of its swing, not its speed or the force applied to it. Huygens used this knowledge to build the first pendulum clock. Because the time it took for the pendulum to swing was always the same based on its length, the timing of the clock could be regulated to that swing. All you needed was a pendulum of the right length to complete its swing once per second. It didn't look quite like the grandfather clocks we're used to today. You can see a picture of it, along with a more thorough history of its invention, on the Vodacast app right now. Huygens' pendulum clock was a quantum leap in timekeeping. Before, clocks were liable to get off by more than 15 minutes a day. The pendulum cut that error down to 15 seconds. Not quite good enough to win the Longitude Prize, but a lot better. Except for one problem. After a few tests at sea, Huygens realized that while the pendulum was great for grandfather clocks on land, it suffered from the same problem that had kept Galileo's celestial clock from working at sea. The rolling of the waves made it impossible to use. Undeterred, Christian Huygens simply created another invention, the balance spring, or hairspring, a coil of thin metal that oscillates in time, regulating the ticking of a clock without having to worry about a pendulum getting off balance in the waves. Huygens' invention of the balance spring led to a new problem, though. The British scientist Robert Hooke had also invented it, and the two fought so hard and for so long over who really owned it that the world of longitude moved on without them. In 1714, the year of the Longitude Act, the year of Whiston's fireworks ships, and the first wave of cranks and hucksters, the prospect of the clock came back. The only solution submitted to the board that was even worth looking at came from Jeremy Thacker, a clockmaker. His submission was so full of jokes and insults, aimed at other applicants mainly, that some historians have recently questioned whether Thacker even really existed, or if he was a product of a just-too-convincing satire. But that's doubtful, since in his treatise, The Longitude Examined, the mysterious Thacker made a couple of very serious developments. For one, his clock was to be sealed in a vacuum behind glass to protect it from humidity and changes in pressure. More importantly, Thacker devised a workable way to keep a clock running while it was being wound, one of the biggest hurdles to using one for longitude on long trips. But that was that. Whether Thacker was a real person or not, he probably was, nothing more about him, his book, or his clock ever shows up again. A number of historians have presumed that his clock was tested, put through its paces, and failed. But there's no record even of that. After that one little blip in 1714, he simply disappeared. But, unbeknownst to anyone, in the board or the public, 
the first real step had already happened just a year before. The longitude problem wasn't going to be solved by Jeremy Thacker or Isaac Newton or Edmund Halley or any or all of the natural philosophers of Cambridge or Oxford, the academies of England or France. When the Longitude Act passed in 1714, the solution was already on its long way through a Yorkshire carpenter that none of the other players in this story had ever even heard of. That is next time on Long Story Short, Part 3. <laughs> Look, I know, I know, I thought I could handle this whole thing in two parts, but it turns out that the most difficult problem in human history is kind of complicated. So, please, join me in two weeks for the incredible story of discovery, sacrifice, subterfuge, infighting, and genius that is the Longitude Finale. I will make it worth your while. A fair ship is mine, called the Golden Vanity. And Music for today's episode from Epidemic Sound, Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, and of course, Johnny Dowdy. Feel the chair be taken by a Spanish Galilee as we sail by the lowlands low. Special thanks for this episode go out to Amanda Armstrong, Christopher Burke, Jennifer Madar, Daniel Hayward, and Thomas Bosarge for contributing to the Patreon that keeps the constant constant. Would you believe that's the first time I've made that word play? If you would like to join them, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to the Lonely Palette, returning art history to the masses. On the latest episode, host Tamar Avishai tackles one of the most famous and seemingly straightforward double portraits to come out of rural America, Grant Wood's American Gothic. But in exploring its fame, she can't help but wonder, why are we so hungry for polarization and parody that we end up projecting so much cultural currency onto a painting of a man, a woman, a window, and a pitchfork? And what does that say about the state of America today? Listen and view images at thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If this Spanish ship you nobly sink and ease me of my care. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where I'm straining to find a tidbit relating the city to longitude and failing, so I'll just say that Grant Wood's American Gothic is here. This has been The Constant. As we sail by the lowlands low. Then boldly the land did he leap into the sea, and an auger very sharp and thin he carried carefully, and he swam the mighty billows till he reached the Galilee, where she sang by the lowlands low, by the lowlands low. Where she sang by the lowlands low. Then bang to the ship, the little hero hide. And he banged the crew to hold him up upon the larboard side. You can sing for me, you little dog, the ungrateful captain cried. As we sail by the lowlands low. Was there ever half a tale so sad as this tale of the sea, where we sailed by the lowlands low, by the lowlands low, where we sailed by the lowlands low.